beautiful day to be in the house of the Lord together. Let's open up our Bibles this morning to Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 26. We're going to finish up chapter 1 this morning, and I know it's been a long time coming, but there's so much that has been packed into this first chapter. And there's really a lot packed into these last few verses, and we're just scratching the surface this morning, but it's a lot of good stuff, and let's go ahead and get into it. Let's read through these verses, 26 through 31, then we'll go go back through them. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing, That creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall be for food. Also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth, in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food. And it was so. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth, day. And that wraps up the six days of creation. On the seventh, next week, we'll see that God rested. But for now, he has completed his creation. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and so on. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let us is a masculine plural. Make is a singular verb. That's a grammatical error. And that's meant to catch your attention if you were reading this in Hebrew. This is God speaking as the Holy Trinity calling attention to his divine nature. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. The word for God is Elohim. That's the usual word for God in this first chapter of Genesis. It is also translated in some places angels. And some people will read this as the angels saying, let us make man in our image, or even the angels speaking with God. And, you know, that's actually more accurate of the position. The angels speaking with God saying, let us make man in our image. I can't get on board with that. Um, we are not made in the angel's image. We are made solely in God's image. And we'll look at what that means to be made in God's image this morning. Also, with verses 27 and 28, it is clear that God, the creator of the universe, is the one speaking here, and only him. There's no other um, beings that are speaking with him. 
This kind of plural reference to God isn't unique to this verse either. We see it also in Genesis 3.22, Genesis 11.7, and Isaiah 6.8, very explicitly. And again, the word translated God here is Elohim, which is itself a plural noun that's always treated in the text as a singular. So there's a, there's a contradiction there in the grammar right off the bat. Then we come to Deuteronomy, to the Shema. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Here, one is echad, meaning unified. Unified. The Lord our God is unified. Plural, yet unified. See, you and I have trouble understanding a perfect unity. We have trouble conceptualizing the parts being a whole and all working together. Um, In a sense, a corporation is a plural unity. Under the law, it's a single entity, but it's run by many people, many heads of that. We can't imagine a three-person partnership with all of the partners acting in perfect unity with each other, right? That just doesn't work in our world. It's hard to imagine, but the Trinity is a perfect unity. Each person of the Trinity is perfectly in line with the will of the others. And so it's interesting that the creation of man, which is what we're looking at here, is ascribed to each person of the Trinity and other places in the scripture. It's ascribed to the Father in Genesis 2.7, and the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The creation of man is attributed to the Son in Colossians 1.16. And keep in mind that the whole, te- the whole context of that passage is Christ. It's talking about Christ. All things were created through him and for him. Obviously, all things includes humanity. The creation of man is attributed to the Holy Spirit. In Job 33, 4, the Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. There is obviously a working from the Trinity in the creation of man. And there's actually many more of those important events that are attributed to all three persons of the Trinity. And you can search those out. There's 29 of them, according to one count that I saw, where each person of the Trinity is specifically mentioned as contributing to a certain pivotal event. Among those are the creation of the universe, the incarnation, the death of Christ, the atonement, the resurrection, and the inspiration of scriptures. That's just a few. It's supposed to be 29 of these. So there's your homework for the week. So what does this really mean to be made in the image of God? That's a profound statement. And I really don't know that we can fully understand what that means because we only see ourselves as the fallen version of what once was created. Now, don't get me wrong, each of us are still God's image bearers, very much so. But certainly things have changed 
since Adam was created. There have been some radical changes since that first sin. Although I don't know fully, I do know a good place to start when approaching this question of what it means to be made in the image of God. Let's start with Jesus. We know that Jesus was made in the likeness of man. His body, that is. Philippians 2.7 says, But made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. You can also see Hebrews 10.5 and Luke 1.35. Jesus took on human flesh that we might be redeemed. Remember, that's one of the requirements of the Goel, the kinsman redeemer. And read Ruth for that whole spiel. Um, we also talked about it in Revelation chapter 5, I believe. The Goel had to be related to the one that was being redeemed. And so Christ is related to us in the flesh. So Jesus was made in the likeness of man, but we also know that Jesus is the express image of God. There's this interesting 200%, if you will. He's all man and all God. We can look at Hebrews 1.3. Hebrews opens up with this. Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. Talking about Christ. And upholding all things by the word of his power so on and so forth. You can also reference Colossians 1.15 and 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. I think that Colossians 2.9, though, sums it up pretty nicely. Colossians 2.9 reads, For in him, that is Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Jesus is the starting and ending point here. He is God who came in the likeness of man. And all of this was anticipated even before God made Adam. 1 Peter 1.20 says that he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. You can also reference Revelation 17.8 and 2 Timothy 1.9 about this foreordination of Christ's redemptive work. So what does that mean? That Christ was foreordained to take on flesh to redeem humanity. It would seem to follow logically that God made man in the image of that body which he himself would one day assume. Interesting. I don't think that that's too much of a stretch. In this sense, it's true spiritually and physically that man was created in the image of God the Son. When we ask what separates man from animals, there are a range of answers that can be given. But the most encompassing answer and to me, the most compelling is that man was made in God's image and given an eternal spirit, which was capable of personal fellowship with his creator. That is the most 
distinguishing characteristic between humanity and the rest of the animal kingdom. What a wonderful gift. The ability to fellowship with our creator. Animals don't get to experience that. They don't have that. And when we further compare ourselves with animals, there are many differences that stick out. The image of God in which we were created surely encompasses these differences that we see. We were given attributes such as a moral conscience. And not just in the sense of being conscious like animals are, but possessing a moral conscience. In other words, we have an innate ability to tell right from wrong. Somebody doesn't have to tell you everything that's right and everything that's wrong. Of course, we need reinforcement for that, but it's also intrinsically within us. And no, animals don't have this ability. I know it seems like your dog knows that it's wrong to pee in the house, (laughs) but in reality, he just knows he's going to be punished if he does. That's not actually him deciding between right and wrong. He does it not because, or he doesn't pee in your house because he knows that it's morally wrong. He does it because he's trained not to pee in the house. He's just trained. And this actually brings us to our next difference. We have the ability to learn, not just to be trained. We can think abstractly about abstract concepts. We have an understanding of beauty and emotion. We can actually appreciate the creation for what it is. Emotion. Our faces are even designed in a way that allows us to express all these emotions without using a word. You just look at somebody and you know how they're feeling especially your spouse. Your spouse can look at you and just tell, oh, I got to check in on him or her because something's not right. Animals cannot express emotions in that great of a detail. Sure, you can usually tell if they're happy or sad, but it ends about there. We have the capacity to express emotions. In the scripture, God is described as having emotion. We were given the, com- the capability of complex language and speech. We can communicate with each other in a way that animals can't. Sure, animals can communicate with each other with noises, maybe body language, but they're nowhere as advanced as the language we use. We can actually communicate with each other abstract ideas. I'm sorry, but there's no way that your dogs at home could have a conversation about the meaning of life. It, it doesn't happen. They don't have that capability. They can't talk about the theoretical aspects of our universe or how they were created. There's no no understanding, and no way to communicate that. However, when God placed Adam in the garden, God spoke to Adam. 
And I would assume that Adam understood. He would have to understand because God told him, don't eat of that tree. And in order to hold him accountable to not eating from that tree, Adam would have had to have understood the assignment. We know that Adam, very first man, was created with the capability and capacity for language. It's interesting. But above all others, all other differences, we were given the capacity for worshiping and loving God, something we don't find in animals. And surely this is at the heart of what it means to be made in his image and likeness. We can experience fellowship with our creator in a way that animals can't. But with this special place as image bearers comes a little bit of jealousy. Satan was provoked to jealousy and began trying to corrupt the image of God in man. And that's his mission from the very beginning is to corrupt man. We'll see more of this as we get into chapter 3, definitely, and even chapter 6. And this is a thread that can be traced through the rest of the Bible as Satan attempts to foil God's plan of redemption. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. With this reference to God's uniplurality, in verse 26, we would expect to find some kind of similar structure in man since God made us in his likeness. And we certainly do see a sort of inferior trinity, if you will, in man's composition. You and I are comprised of a body, soul, and spirit. And there are a few typical words that we'll see for these concepts in the Bible. There's some words in Hebrew and in Greek, and we translate them in English. The word spirit in Hebrew is ruach. In Greek, it's pneuma. And those words can also be translated as wind or breath or spirit. Our English soul is usually the translation that's given for nefesh. We've talked about nefesh the past couple of weeks in Hebrew. And in the Greek, that's translated psyche. You're all familiar with that root of our word psychology. That's soul. Now, body has various usages in Hebrew. There's several words that are translated body in our English translations. And it's usually soma in the Greek. Soma, body. Now, although these terms do overlap with each other, each term doesn't exactly line up with its Hebrew, Greek, or English usage 100% of the time. Okay, and this is where we need to be careful. So we don't want to nitpick about the differences between these words and build doctrine on that. That has been done before, and it's dangerous. So just don't take these terms too far. We can recognize that they're distinct from each other, but exactly where that division lies, we really don't know. We don't want to press the definitions for these too hard, because if we're honest with ourselves, 
we simply don't know where the body ends and the soul begins, or where the soul ends and the spirit begins. They're so interconnected that it's sometimes even difficult for a trained medical professional to distinguish where a specific symptom really stems from. And just a couple of quick examples to strengthen this point. When you experience the loss of someone close, there's nothing in your physical environment that inflicts harm to your body. But you feel that loss physically. There are always physical symptoms that accompany that emotional burden. You can feel a deep guttural pain. It feels like somebody is just wrenching on your stomach. That's a physical feeling that we get from emotional trauma. And when we experience a traumatic event, whether it's physically or emotionally traumatic, our bodies react with stress hormones that spike our blood sugar, and they prepare our bodies for that fight-or-flight reaction. And cortisol is one of those big stress hormones. It preps you to fight or run. And in the case of trauma, there's often lasting effects like emotional detachment, avoidance of places, people, and activities that remind us of the traumatic event. And there's feelings of anxiety or depression, trouble sleeping or concentrating, and being easily irritable. Those are all physical ways that even emotional trauma can present itself. So I'll ask you, where does the body end and the soul or the spirit begin? We don't know. The concept of pain also seems to be more complex than we once thought it was. We can now confidently say that pain is not simply a result of tissue damage. It's a complex psycho-emotional phenomenon. There's way more going on there than just the body. So yes, we're a very integrated system of body, soul, and spirit. But there are some differences between each of these aspects of our being that we can discern. Not by ourselves, but Hebrews 4.12 says that the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. Listen to this. Piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow. Have you ever thought of it that way? The word of God can divide between the soul and the spirit. And I don't, this is just me thinking out loud, but I wonder if that joints and marrow taken together speaks simply of the body, if that's a way that you can read it. So the word of God divides between the soul, spirit, and the body. There are certainly some biblical ideas that we can use to distinguish the body, soul, and the spirit. And to do that, we'll actually start in verse 27, Genesis 1. Verse 27 starts by saying that God created, that's bara, man in his own image. And we remember that bara is a special verb 
that means to create from nothing. It's distinct from the other verbs that are usually translated assemble, bring forth, made, that kind of thing. It's the difference between a potter molding the clay and the clay actually being created. What we have here is a creation from nothing, bara. God created man in his own image. It's never used with anything but God as the subject. Nothing else has the power to create from nothing. And this is the third and final time this verb is used in chapter one. You remember the first time was in the very first verse. It said, in the beginning, God created, bara, the heavens and the earth. That was the creation of matter. Every element that would subsequently form the earth, sun, moon, stars, everything, every material body in the universe, those same elements were used to form or sprout the plants from the earth. And verse 1 speaks of their creation. But something else had to be created with the animals. Remember last week, their bodies were still from the earth, like a plant's body, in quotes. But in verse 21, God creates, bara, every living soul, nefesh. Every animal has one of these souls. In other words, they're conscious of their own existence and conscious of their environment. But something even further had to be created special for man. Verse 7 in chapter 2 sums it up pretty well. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, using those elements that were already there, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. Our bodies are formed from the dust, the same way that the animals are formed. Literally, dirt makes up our bodies. And we know that even better now in the scientific era that we live in. The same elements that are found in dirt are found in your body. You know, when we die, we return to dust, very literally. So our bodies are formed from the dust. Then God breathes into man the breath of life. And like I said, that word breath is also translated spirit in some other places. And man became a living being or a living soul, nefesh. Man was created in the image of God, body, soul, and spirit. And of course, the three persons of the Trinity are the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In Christ dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. We can relate Christ to the body aspect. Jesus came to earth as a man, so it seems appropriate to relate him to the body. We can relate the Holy Spirit to our aspect of spirit and the Father to the soul. Now, of course, we don't want to take these similarities and relationships too far, as with anything else. And I do want to reiterate 
that while there's some overlap in the terms between Greek and Hebrew and English, the usages are slightly different. So be careful there. We don't want to venture too far into unfamiliar waters. One thing, though, that the Bible is very clear on is the fact that man is special and distinct from the animals. Verse 28 reads, Then God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. I want you to notice here that he blessed them, plural, Adam and Eve. So we're getting more of a bird's eye view here. We're going to get more details about the creation of Adam and then the subsequent creation of Eve in chapter 2. So at this point, both were created. He's blessing both male and female. God blesses them in a similar way to how he blessed the animals, and he gives them a similar command. But to the animals, he stopped at fill the earth. To man, he says, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over it. And... It says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And of course, he created them male and female. If the purpose of man, which is God's command to him here, was to fill the earth, then of course, the design as male and female would be suited to the purpose of reproduction and dominion. Where else do we see this command for the human race to multiply in the Bible? Noah and his family emerge from the ark and are told to fill the earth. Genesis 9.1, So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This is obviously something that God wanted. And I believe that this was never abrogated. We're still under this obligation to multiply and fill the earth. There's a lot of talk about overpopulation right now, and there's a lot of schemes to depopulate. And it is very clearly to me from Scripture the purpose of man and our command to fill the earth. And these... All this talk of depopulation is not from God. That is not a mandate from God. And in fact, it's directly against the mandate that we see here from God. He wanted man to inhabit and enjoy his creation. Now, I really want us to understand this. God literally told man to bring creation under his authority. But this is not permission to abuse our position of authority, which unfortunately man has done. We're supposed to be stewards of God's creation and use it for our enjoyment, not to trample over it, Much of the time, our fallen nature really gets in the way 
of our perfect stewardship. And greed, mostly, I would say, gets in the way. Nevertheless, this is God's mandate to us, to be stewards of his creation. And this verse uses military words to describe the role of man. We see subdue and have dominion, although there is no actual conflict suggested. This is still God's perfect creation. It has been proposed that this refers more to a conquest of the mind, a mandate for intense study and utilization of our knowledge of nature. And so this is seen as a commission of science and technology. Science is just our study and understanding of the world, and technology is just the application of this understanding for the betterment of the world's inhabitants. Now, obviously, there are some forbidden technologies today, but not at that point in creation. Psalm 8, 6 through 8 reiterates this mandate to humanity. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the seas. And now after giving man his commission, God tells him about the provision he's made for one of his most essential needs, food. Verse 29 And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall be for food. This is the primary purpose of the plants that God created. Adam and Eve were to eat vegetation. Yes, they were vegetarians. With no death of animals or humans, they certainly wouldn't be able to consume the flesh of animals. God gives them every green herb for food. But after the flood, we see in Genesis 9, God does give the animals over to man for food. In God's perfect creation, I have no doubt that all the nutrients you would need were provided for by the plants. Today, if you're a vegetarian, you're probably supplementing your diet with vitamin B12. It's a vitamin that we can only get from animal products. I find it easy to believe that either Adam and Eve didn't need B12 in their perfect bodies, or the plants of the perfect creation actually did provide it, and something changed between then and now. So if you want to be a vegetarian, that's fine. But don't make the Bible your reasoning for it. Because it very clearly states that God gave the animals over to man for food. Genesis 9. I personally enjoy a good tenderloin. So I am not going to be a vegetarian. But if that's your choice, then good luck. Verse 30, also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, 
and to everything that creeps on the earth, in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food. And it was so. So not only humans were vegetarian, but all of the animal kingdom only ate vegetables or vegetation. Since there was no death, no animals were eating each other. It was a creation of perfect harmony. And we'll talk about this more when we get to the flood of Noah and the ark, this idea of the animals being vegetarians. But even in the millennium, we see a harmony of nature. Death is still around in the millennium, yes, but aging processes are slowed dramatically, and the animal kingdom all gets along with each other. So I I kind of see it as a cessation of eating meat. It seems that we won't need to eat the animals. I don't know for sure, but look at Isaiah 11, 6 through 9. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. That bear seems to be eating grass now. Their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, the waters cover the sea pretty completely, don't they? So will be the knowledge of the Lord in the millennium. That's an interesting picture that we get there. And I think that that harkens back much to the garden, to the original creation. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed, it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. That very good literally means exceedingly good. It was perfection, in other words. Now, what is encompassed by the phrase, everything that he had made? What does that mean? Well, everything but God himself. There is only one high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, as Isaiah puts it. No one else occupies that role, and therefore anything that is not God is created by God. God is the first cause, in other words, and he needs no cause. Therefore, the creation that God calls very good at this last day of creation must include the angels, even the ones who would fall. I'll propose to you that they have not fallen by the sixth day of creation. God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. This very good creation must include the angels. 
I'm sure that God wouldn't call Satan and his angels very good in their fallen state. This little insight tips us off to the fact that Satan had not yet fallen from heaven at this point at the end of creation. And Ezekiel 28.13 speaks of Satan being in the Garden of Eden before he fell. That's Ezekiel 28.13. Starting a little before in 12, it says, You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the Garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. What does that tell us? This means that this, the fall of Satan had to come after the garden was planted by God in Genesis 2.8. This is a challenge to the gap theory, who supposes that Satan's rebellion came between verses 1 and 2. Now, I'm not saying that we know exactly when this rebellion occurred, but it does seem that we can confidently place it between when the Garden of Eden was planted and when Satan tempted man. At the end of this sixth day, creation is perfected. The crowning achievement of God's creation has now been created and made. Created bara and made asa. The earth is no longer unformed and unfilled. It's exactly the opposite. It is well-formed, and it is well-filled. It's filled with life and filled with humanity. And it's the perfect conditions for life and humanity. And this command was given to both animals and man to continue to fill the earth. The image of God. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. If you and I are made in the image of God, how should we treat each other as fellow image bearers? Do you see those that you interact with as image bearers of God? And if you say no to that question, if you did, how would seeing them that way affect how you treated them? These are some questions we have to ask ourselves. Because we are all image bearers of our creator. Do you see others as image bearers? Do you see yourself as an image bearer? Because that has tremendous impact on self-esteem, self-efficacy. Do you see yourself in this light? Next week we'll see in chapter 2, Thus the heavens and the earth and all the hosts of them were finished. And on this seventh day, God rested from his work of creation. Now, we know very little about life before the fall of man. Very little. But chapter 2 in Genesis gives us some good insights into what it was like. 
and we'll look at that next week. Let's close this morning in a word of prayer, and then we'll be dismissed. Mm-hmm.